Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In a work entitled The Ethics of Ambiguity, we can expect that this notion or concept or term ambiguity is going to play a really central role in the work. And indeed it does. Now, ambiguity was around for a very long time before de Beauvoir started talking about it. Other people invoke ambiguity as well in philosophy and even in the existentialist movement. So we want to try to provide a preliminary clarification of the term before we jump in. And this is particularly important because she is using it in a way that's a little bit different than what you might find if you go to a dictionary definition, particularly if your dictionary doesn't have a wide range of definitions because ambiguity originally is viewed as something that is, is primarily about language and meaning. So it's about expressions that can be interpreted in multiple ways. They have more than one sense. A prime example of this, sometimes we call this equivocation, right? But ambiguity would be not exactly the same thing as equivocation, but could include it. If we use the word seal, that can mean the animal. It can mean the action of sealing something. It can mean the stamp that we use to impress on wax. And it can mean a British pop singer, among other things. We might come up with other terms as well. So ambiguity can happen at the level of single terms. It can happen at the level of entire sentences. We can talk about even whole chapters of a work being ambiguous, particularly if you're not sure precisely what they're referring to. Hegel's phenomenology is a prime example because he so rarely names names. So you're reading through a dialectic and you're like, what is this actually referring to? I guess it could be this or it could be this. Think for example about the famous master-slave dialectic that has been used like the proverbial wax nose that can be bent in so many different ways to signify so many different things, including by de Beauvoir herself, right? So there's a lot of ambiguity in language, but we can also talk about ambiguity within situations. How do you read a situation? Can it be interpreted in more than one way? And you can think about all the different dodges that people have when they get caught. Oh, I wasn't stealing. I was putting the money back, right? You just happened to have caught me as I was getting it out to brush off some dust off of the, the dollar bills or something like that. Oh, there's more than one reading of the situation. Obviously one of them is probably false, but it is ambiguous, right? Actions, what is a person doing? This is a, a fundamental problem in ethics. When Immanuel Kant invokes the maxims of your action, you have to be able to say what the maxim is and the same action could be described in different ways. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages talked about the need to zero in on the moral species of the action and a similar sort of thing. We use the term proper description in the 20th century in analytic philosophy to talk about that. Motivations, 
There are a lot of different ways we can interpret the way in which a person talks about themselves, what they value. It's not always so straightforward and simple. And then we can also talk about our human condition itself. Is that perhaps ambiguous or is it, you know, straightforward? And so when something is ambiguous, we have the capacity for multiple interpretations. And those interpretations can be very crude, not well thought out. They can be very refined, very nuanced take other interpretations into account and say why they're bad interpretations. But according to Du Beauvoir, ambiguity is something that we, we cannot get rid of. And as a matter of fact, she is going to criticize other philosophers for ignoring the ambiguity of our situation. She talks about our human condition as involving tragic ambiguity. So here's a good place to go to the text. What is this tragic ambiguity? Well, in her first period, paragraph, she describes some of the, we could call the modes or high notes of this. She says, rational animal, thinking, read, the human beings escape from their natural condition without, however, freeing themselves from it. We are part of this world of which we are a consciousness. So we're something within the world, but we're also something that discloses, that understands the world. We assert ourselves as a pure internality against which no external power can take hold. You know, when we engage in willing and choice in deciding for ourselves, but we also experience ourselves as a thing crushed by the dark weight of other things. So we have the paradox or the problem of you know, freedom and, and determinism. At every moment, he, the person can grasp the non-temporal truth of their existence. But between the past, which no longer is, and the future, which is not yet, this moment when we exist is nothing. This privilege, which we alone possess of being a sovereign and unique subject among a universe of objects is what we share with all of our fellow human beings. In turn, an object for others, we are nothing more than an individual in the collectivity on which we depend. So these are some prime aspects of our human condition, and they're not reducible just to one type of ambiguity. This situation is ambiguous in many ways. We could look at a person's action and say, is that genuinely a free action or are they being pushed by forces beyond their control or below their level of consciousness or by the way we've nudged them in setting up the situation? Perhaps one, perhaps the other, perhaps both. We, you know, there's, there's all these aspects to the human condition which are capable of multiple interpretations, multiple ways of grasping them, multiple ways of looking at them. This is part of what makes ethics possible in the first place, this ambiguity, according to de Beauvoir. So she criticizes philosophers for having ignored or having tried to downplay this ambiguity in favor of something else. They didn't just say, oh, ambiguity, get rid of it. You know, oh, it's bad or something like that. No, they wanted to propose something else in its place. So she says, as long as there have been men and they have lived, they've felt this tragic ambiguity of their condition. But as long as there have been philosophers and they have thought most of them have tried to mask it. They've striven to reduce mind to matter or to reabsorb matter into mind. We have materialism and idealism there, right? Or to merge them within a single substance, a kind of monism. And these are all reductive. Or there's a dualism. Those who have accepted the dualism have established a hierarchy between body and soul, which permits of considering as negligible the part of the self which cannot be saved. They've denied death either by integrating it with life or promising to man immortality. 
or they've denied life, considering it as a veil of illusion beneath which is hidden the truth of nirvana. Now, of course, she's getting nirvana a bit wrong there from a Buddhist perspective, but you understand what she's after there. A lot of philosophers' responses have been rather reductive. And why be reductive? Because they don't like the ambiguity that's there and, and it's difficult to deal with. And it means that everything that you've written is never quite finished. So there's an impulse to get rid of it. She also criticizes those who attempt to reconcile all of this together. She talks about Hegel as a prime example. Before that though, she says, it's been a matter of eliminating ambiguity by making oneself, by working upon oneself, by taking a stance on what one is, pure inwardness or pure externality, by escaping from the sensible world or being engulfed in it, by yielding to eternity or enclosing oneself in the pure moment. So every one of these, we could call them speculative choices also has a practical upshot. What we do as human beings, philosophy is philosophy as a way of life. Now, what else? She says, Hegel, with more ingenuity, tried to reject none of the aspects of the human condition and to reconcile them all. According to his system, the moment is preserved in the development of time. Nature asserts itself in the face of spirit, which denies it while assuming it. The individual is again found in the collectivity within which he is lost. And each person's death is fulfilled by being canceled out in touch uses of capitals, life of mankind. One can repose in a marvelous optimism. And she talks about this, and, and this could be an emblem for so many other viewpoints attempting to have like the, the system that reconciles everything, that makes sense out of everything. There are many different varieties of this. De Beauvoir doesn't want to go that route. And she thinks that existentialism as a movement is a refusal of that route and a criticism of that route. She says that we should look the truth in the face. What is the truth? The truth of our tragic ambiguity of the human condition that we're actually caught in. And she says that we should assume our fundamental ambiguity. And she, then she says, it's in the knowledge of the genuine conditions of our life that we must draw our strength to live and our reason for acting. So it's not just about managing to find something that'll work for us and continuing on and then stopping thinking after that. There, there's a continual process where we have to reinterpret ambiguity hereby becomes, you could say, productive and in, in a certain sense, guiding. And she talks about existentialism as being from the start, from Kierkegaard onward, a philosophy of existentialism. She also you know, says, well, other people say that it's a philosophy of the absurd, a philosophy of despair. She's going to contest that later on in the work, particularly in the section towards the end, where she says that ambiguity is not the same thing as absurdity, and she's prioritizing ambiguity. And so we can ask about existentialism and notice that there's an ambiguity here as well. Well, is it a philosophy of the absurd and despair or is it a philosophy of ambiguity of hope perhaps, or at least a commitment and freedom? It's, it's up to the existentialist to interpret, to decide. And not all existentialists will necessarily go the same way. De Beauvoir is trying to provide a reason for why to go her way with this. And she begins by talking about Sartre, her lifelong companion and collaborator. Now, interestingly, this book is by many viewed as accomplishing what Jean-Paul Sartre was unable to pull off. And she, she does in fact criticize being in nothingness a little bit here, saying that it's true that in being and nothingness, Sartre insisted on the abortive aspect of the human adventure. It's only in the last pages he opens up the perspective for ethics. Now, opens up the perspective for ethics is not the same thing as provides an ethics, 
right? Which is what she, in fact, is attempting to do here in this work. So she is completing something that starts in, in Sartre's philosophy. You could really say in their philosophy, right? So she goes on and she talks about, here we go. Sartre in being and nothingness fundamentally defined man, that being whose being is not to be that subjectivity, which realizes itself only as a presence in the world, that engaged freedom, that surging of the for itself, which is immediately given for others, right? So that already includes a lot of ambiguity. What do you make of freedom? What do you make of this surge, this presence into the world? What do you make of the fact that others can interpret you as well. That's part of the dynamic that's worked out in Sartre's work. And she goes on and talks about, here we go, this failure described in being in nothingness, right? The failure to attain the godlike status or object-like status of being in itself, of having attained a completely stable, not just identity, but read on the world. And this failure, she says, is definitive, but it is also ambiguous itself. The failure is ambiguous. The failure involves ambiguity. How do you interpret it? What do you make of it? She says, man, Sartre tells us, is a being who makes himself a lack of being in order that there might be being. And so what does that mean? That's, that's a rather ambiguous phrase right there. And she tells us that this has metaphysical, and I use the word moral here just because I'm thinking of the nice way in which these are always tied together in French things. There's the Revue de Metaphysique et Morale, which was one of the flagship philosophy journals. We could say ethical as well. There's some dimensions to human being that are automatically metaphysical and moral, and Sartre was exploring these in Being and Nothingness. Intentionality, having some sort of direction towards goals, but goals that are not fixed once and for all, but goals that we, in some respect, once we become conscious of ourselves, choose whether to keep as goals or whether to move away from as goals. This desire to disclose being. Right? She goes on and says, Sartre tells us that man makes himself this lack of being in order that there might be be being. The term in order that clearly indicates intentionality. It's not in vain that human beings nullify being. Thanks to the human being, being is disclosed and humans desire this disclosure. There's an original type of attachment to being, which is not the relationship wanting to be myself, but rather wanting to disclose being. And she says, here, there is not failure, but rather success. But it's, it's a success that we don't dominate, we don't control. In revealing to myself, as she says, the landscape, or in my case, revealing to myself this chalkboard filled with notes on something I'm going to talk about, but might have forgotten about at this point. I'm struggling to make sense of it while I pick up the book and read it. I am reinterpreting the situation, and I am taking stances, existential stances, in a rather minor way by doing so. It's not affecting the totality of my life, unless I'm investing my status as an intellectual at every single point or something like that. And there's a few other things that need to be pointed out here that are very interesting and important for understanding the, the scope of ambiguity. She talks about something that Hegel brings up. And Hegel's not the only philosopher who does this, this idea that if everything was solved, if everything was clear, there really would be no scope for, for ethics. Ethics not understood as just like a set of rules or principles by which we then machine-like operate and, and solve things. 
Ethics understood as a distinctively human activity, which involves us in making choices and not just making choices at a low level, but also prioritizing, deciding, do I think that the categorical imperative that Kant put forward is really how I should guide my life? I know what will be the case if I choose the categorical imperative, provided I'm actually applying it properly and not being sloppy or making exceptions for myself, but I don't yet know whether I should follow it. Or maybe I think I know because my parents were strict conscience and brought me up in that way and weren't even explicit conscience, just focused on doing your duty and talked about universalization and not using people. So when I read Kant, I was like, oh, this is perfect. That from an existentialist perspective is still a choice. There's still a fundamental ambiguity there involving our freedom, involving our capacity to select more than one thing and then zero in on one of them to the exclusion of the others. And that is part of the ambiguity. So the ethical exists for humans who are posed with situations, with problems, usually problems that are messy, usually problems where we're already steering to one side, but we're not sure about the things we've left behind. So this is very important as well. If we try to get rid of all the ambiguity, we effectively rule out the ethical. The last thing that I want to bring up is her refusal of a certain a priori. And this is an important point in, in the work where she's bringing in one of the key themes, which is namely that of the freedom of others and whether I am going to be irrevocably opposed to the freedom of others and, and they to mine, or whether it's possible for these to be brought together. So she says, an ethics of ambiguity will be one which will refuse to deny a priori that separate existence can at the same time be bound to each other, that their individual freedoms can forge laws valid for all. Now, when you look at that sentence, it's rather confusing the way it's framed. What she's saying is that many people do take it as an a priori, as something that we just have to accept as given. We can't think otherwise that separate existence can at the same time be bound to each other. This is, this is what a priori people are denying, right? There can't be any sort of solidarity. There can't be any way in which we can harmonize our freedoms, that their individual freedoms can forge laws valid for all. How can you go from the individual to, to the collective, as she's calling it, to the universal of humankind? And she's not saying an ethics of ambiguity is asserting this. She's saying it's refusing to deny. What is the difference between those? It could be that it is the case that you, really you can't bring this off. We don't know until we try and we discover the truth, you might say in a pragmatic way, by trying and then reflecting on what our action or its failure has brought about. And that is integral to this, this work. And that too is part of what she's meaning by ambiguity. So we're going way beyond ambiguity as a function of language, of meaning of phrases, to thinking about things that are much closer to who we are as moral, and you might say metaphysical beings. And so existentialism is going to be a philosophy that takes this issue, this directive seriously. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.